is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. A massive heat wave that has been scorching Europe has moved north to the U.K. It is bringing with it temperatures of more than 100 degrees, which is pretty much unheard of for our friends across the ocean. It is so hot that a Royal Air Force runway melted. Some weather experts, it turns out, were a couple decades early in their forecast for scorching hot temperatures. We'll go in-depth into Palm Springs-like weather in the North Atlantic. La Nina might be back again, which could mean another dry winter for Southern California. And while many European economies struggled because of the war in Ukraine, Russia seems to be fine, at least for now. New report is out, slams a police response to the Uvalde school shooting. COVID cases continue to increase in California. We could see levels that surpass the big wave last winter. A popular candy is now said to be unfit for human consumption. There's a new lawsuit about that. <laughs> isn't all, by definition, <laughs> isn't say, all candy unfit for human consumption? Those colors are so natural. Yeah, I know. Right? Right. <laughs> uh, and Dodger Stadium hosting the All-Star Game tomorrow. But good luck affording a ticket to that and uh, a lot of other sporting events these days. Okay, we start, though, with the U.K. Heat wave. Jack Kessler is a writer, columnist, author of the Evening Standards West End Final Newsletter. He's in the London area right now. Jack, uh, welcome back to the show. Uh, how uncomfortable is it? How hot is it there? Uh, good afternoon. Well, um, I've just turned the uh, portable fan off in my flat, so there wouldn't be any disturbance on the call speaking to you. And uh, my hands already clammy, and I'm regretting everything about it. <laughs> it's very hot in London. <laughs> We won't keep you like half an hour. Don't worry. You can get back to the fans soon. So what are people doing? Because this is, this is like unheard of for you guys. It's very unusual. It's more about what people aren't doing. So Transport for London, which runs, as you might expect, Transport in London, has advised people not to, um, to use public transport. I mean, if it's uh, roughly 100 degrees um, outside it's a similar level on some of the deeper level trains uh, in london that don't have air conditioning so exceptionally unpleasant in fact there are stricter laws against um, livestock being transported on trains than there are for humans to give you an indication huh. when you mentioned air conditioning uh, air conditioning is not as common right in the uk as it might be here in the states Sorry, what is that? Um, air no, air... we, we, yeah. <laughs> we don't really do air conditioning. Um, um, it, it's just, I mean, historically, it's not been necessary. It's expensive. Um, and it's just not um, something that we generally do. Uh, that may have to change. But, of course, there are tremendous downsides to having uh, pretty much every uh, home having air conditioning. It's expensive. It uses a lot of energy. It makes the air elsewhere much hotter. Um, but there may be something that will be rolled out more widely in the future. Yeah, I'm curious, what's the coverage like when you look around, you know, with the paper and the TV? Is this like, oh, look at people are, are getting out hoses and, and spraying each other and, and drink, eating ice cream and all the fun stuff? Or is this like, wow, everybody, buckle up because this is the future? There is still a little of the sort of classic English um, summer on the beach. But really, there's a lot more understanding, I think, that this isn't... Fun. In fact, it's incredibly dangerous. Uh, thousands of people died in previous heat waves in the UK. Sadly, many more will die because of the weather um, over the next week or so. So there, I think there really is an understanding now that this is not normal, or rather it didn't used to be normal. 
and it's our future, and it's only going to get worse if uh, countries like the UK and elsewhere don't commit to, to net zero and uh, widespread decarbonization. Are there many uh, cooling stations, for example, places that people can go who are either elderly or who have uh, different illnesses and really need to be kept cool? So there have been calls for uh, public buildings which will have air conditioning, you know, think museums or libraries, uh, to, to stay open. Um, but I don't think um, we're quite there yet. Uh, there's been a lot of um, information about, you know, what to look out for in terms of heat stroke for people to keep uh, shutters closed and blinds closed. But I do think questions like that will become a lot more widespread in the future as this becomes, um, frankly, an annual occurrence. How much longer, like how many days are you going to have to deal with this? Well, tomorrow is meant to be even hotter. So tomorrow could hit 40 degrees. Now, forgive me, my um, arithmetical skills don't stretch to doing conversions from Celsius to Fahrenheit in my head. But that's well over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, 104. I just Googled And that would, that would be um, significantly higher than the, the previous uh, record. Um, but but it should it should sort of tear the, the very high temperature should end this week, uh, but um, we only wait until next summer really now. I mean, do you think uh, more people will head to pubs? I mean, they're not air conditioned, I guess either. But at least you can cool off and and drink. You have got the uh, the cliche right down. <laughs> what we, I mean, there's no there's no weather where pubs wouldn't be the appropriate. Um, it's always the answer. <laughs> All right, <laughs> Jack Kessler, writer, columnist, author, of the Evening Standards West End Final Newsletter. Jack, thanks. Well, this heat wave <laughs> was predicted, but not until 2050. A group of experts in the UK modeled a forecast for one day that year based on climate change predictions. It looks like they were a bit early. This comes as we here in Southern California could experience a third straight La Nina winter. Alex Tardy is a warming coordination, warning rather, coordination meteorologist with the National Weather Service in San Diego. Alex, thanks for being with us. So what would the significance be of having for year three in a row a uh, La Nina winter? Yeah, thanks for having me on, everyone. So La Nina, that's the water temperature in the equatorial Pacific Ocean, and we measure that compared to averages. It looks like it's going to remain below average, and what does that mean for us uh, you know, so far away, south of Hawaii? Well, it does have an influence on our overall weather patterns, especially during the winter months when we see most of our rain. Um, and now we're on three years of drought in Northern California, two in Southern California, so even before La Nina set up, the cold phase, uh, we started having these dry winters and the drought began. So it's concerning because um, typically when we see La Nina, especially three years in a row, it's been a while since that happened, 2001, it means drier than average winters. Which is exactly what we don't need right now after all these years of drought. Exactly. Our reservoirs are depleted. Um, you know, they're 50% or less full. And this includes Lake Mead, Lake Powell, two key reservoirs in the Colorado system at all-time lows. So we're in a situation, you know, in California where conservation is important. We can't just expect this upcoming winter to change things around. And of course, you know, we were mentioning just before our first segment where we were talking to somebody in, in London 
I mean, this is really a not necessarily because of La Nina, but these very disturbing uh, drought periods, uh, excessive heat periods are really now becoming very manifest globally. Yeah, you're exactly right. Um, All these individual weather events, heat events, dry periods, rain events are not directly tied with La Nina. The overall weather pattern and really why we're in three years of drought in Northern California is is very magnified in extreme. Um, And then so when you go into summer months or you go into winter months, you see those extremes come to reality, unfortunately. And what we mean by extreme weather pattern is just the overall weather pattern is magnified and amplified and it won't break. Uh, so when we get heat waves, they're even hotter than they normally are. When we get uh, big rainstorms, they're wetter than they normally are. And droughts longer and more intense than they normally are. And this is exactly what we're seeing in California, but also what we're seeing in Europe. If you just look back to last year, the drought and the heat wave that the Pacific Northwest saw, that was something you know they never were forecasting for, even in 2050. Yeah. What do you make of that that 2050 experiment they did where they said, hey, this could be what we see in in all these years ahead. Now they're saying, "Okay, well, we're seeing it now, but maybe that 2050 forecast is like a normal day in 2050, which would be terrible. (laughs) Yeah, that's quite possible. So when we start seeing these extreme events and then they add up and they become influencing our normals. So in other words, our normals get drier or our normals get warmer which every 10 years we redo our normals. You know, we're also looking at California 2050, 2070, and researchers at Scripps at UCSD San Diego have found the same thing which you're referring to, forecasts of 2050 for our parts of Southern California have already materialized, uh, even in Southern California. So what we saw, you know, in a 2050, 2070 forecast in terms of more frequent days over 100 more extreme days going over 120, warmer overnight lows, those type of things um, are already showing up in some of the recent years, including this year, 2021 and 2020. And of course, that all affects our long-term normals uh, when we go down the road. Alex Tardy, Warning Coordination Meteorologist, National Weather Service, San Diego. And a little bit later on, California could see a worse COVID surge now than in the wintertime. And good luck finding a good deal on an all-star game ticket at Dodger Stadium. Prices are getting out of reach for regular folks. Right now, the war in Ukraine impacting all of Europe when it comes to economics. Many countries dealing with higher energy prices, record inflation. Food banks in Italy feeding more and more people. Russia right now doing okay despite sanctions, but that could change in the long term. Daniel Treisman, political science professor at UCLA, expert on Russian politics and economics, Thanks for being here. So what do you make of this? Because that's kind of the talk today. Europe taking the hit. We knew they would. Russia could see it uh, maybe delayed. And I think we've talked before about people wondering what was happening. You know, are the sanctions working? Yeah. uh, Well, in the short run, of course, the Russian authorities have managed to stabilize the ruble to prevent a major banking crisis. Uh, The high oil prices are bringing in revenue, making up for lower volumes of oil exports. Uh, So on the surface, Uh, It doesn't look so bad, but uh, look a little deeper uh, and you see that industry is in deep trouble, uh, largely because of the cutoff of components and uh, uh, high-tech materials, and and especially microchips. 
because just about all manufactured products use these microchips. So we saw in May car production down by 97%. Uh, of course, uh, Russians can still build cars, but forget about GPS or uh, ABS brakes or airbags or any of the other things that require uh, microelectronics. And it's the same with washing machines, refrigerators, TVs, all down by 50, 60%. So uh, on the surface, things don't look so bad, but uh, people are seeing more and more businesses close, about a thousand businesses closing every day, uh, much more than before. Uh, so uh, even if uh, so far we haven't seen you know, major crises uh, on the surface, uh, things do not look very good if you look a little deeper. Okay, so actually everybody, Western Europe, the U.S., Russia, we're all kind of playing this time game, right, to see which one blinks first. Is it Western Europe because of the discomfort that might happen this winter if they don't have enough uh, to heat their homes and, and to power their cars? Is it Russia because of all the things that you've just uh, uh, mentioned? Uh, who do you think ends up blinking first? Well, it depends. It depends if uh, the EU gets its act together and the Europeans really come up with a plan for dealing with the energy crisis that people are predicting uh, for the winter. Okay, right now it's it's a little bit painful because of high prices, but it's not a crisis. Uh, in the winter, uh, they need to have uh, already filled their gas storage tanks. They're, they're currently at a reasonable level, about 60% full, uh, but Russia, Gazprom is cutting off gas uh, obviously going to make it very hard uh, for the Europeans. Uh, so uh, it's crucial that right now Europe comes up with a plan. Uh, they are doing things like uh, looking for other suppliers. So uh, they're going to double the purchases of gas from Azerbaijan, which is a very helpful move. Uh, but still, they've got a plan for how gas is also going to be shared around if certain countries run into uh, severe difficulties uh, and, and just what they're going to do, because it's very hard to replace uh, gas on a, on a short-term short basis, because most of it comes through pipelines. If they uh, figure that out, I think we'll be okay. Um, and Russia, uh, they're going to be more and more affected by these accumulating problems to do with uh, industry, and that's really going to affect military industry too. Uh, all all the, uh, uh, the weapons, the, the missiles and so on, uh, also uh, are going to be difficult to produce without these imported uh, microelectronics. Uh, and manpower on, uh, on the Russian side uh, is hard to replenish. Uh, they've gone through all the uh, fresh, well-trained troops. So yes, as you said, it's kind of a, a, a race, uh, a, a, a problem of seeing who's going who's, who's gonna to fail first. But I think uh, uh, if Europe plans properly, uh, then it, there's a good chance that the West will be able to hold out and Ukraine will be able to hold out against the Russians. Daniel Treisman, political science professor at CUCLA. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. New reports released extremely critical of the police response into the Uvalde school shooting. Special Texas House Committee slamming the law enforcement response and leadership, saying that nearly 400 officers who showed up were confused and had bad information. Yeah, it says officers could have taken charge, could have confronted the shooter long before he was actually shot and killed. Rich Emberlin is a former Dallas police SWAT officer, 30-year law enforcement veteran. Rich, thanks for being 
with us. Various words I've heard in the past few days since this latest report was published uh, from people in that community. They range from disgusting to uh, outrageous to uh, some of which I can't say on the air. Uh, It's pretty bad. I don't think it was critical enough. You okay. know, they, they let these guys off the hook. Arredondo is a coward, and I'm not even going to say in my opinion. There's no doubt he is. He wrote himself in as the incident commander in the paperwork and the special operations uh, personnel work just days before. We don't need an incident commander. We need the first officers that show up to go in and find the noise and make it stop. And you don't that- sit around for 77 minutes while these young kids missed their golden hour that probably could have lived. We'll find out eventually. But those now saying 376 officers showed up, I have no doubt. But that happened over hours. The initial handful of officers should have gone in and made that noise stop and not used hand sanitizer, which is the most egregious thing I've ever seen in my life, during a shooting. And it wasn't a barricade situation. A barricade situation is when a suspect's talking to you, he is done shooting, He's negotiating. He's letting people out. That's a barricade. This is an active shooter. It was nothing else. And that's the part that doesn't make any sense to people. That's the through line for weeks now. I mean, when you have people in the hallway and they've got guns, that's you're supposed to run towards it and make it stop, like you were saying. That's, right. that's the operation. A- active yeah. shooter, you go in. If there's one of you, if there's five of you, if there's ten, great, go in. I've told you before, my litmus test, if I'm outside my daughter's high school and I don't have a gun and I hear gunfire in there, I'm grabbing a garbage can lid and a stick, and I'm going in. You have to do something. Well, and and that's the thing, uh, and I think we talked about this once before, but that's the thing I think is the most puzzling to many people. You have, you know, whether initially it was 50, 100, whatever, at, at some point you had more than enough. Uh, law enforcement personnel there, regardless of of who was or wasn't in charge or who said what to whom, you would think that at some point, one or more of those armed uh, law enforcement people would have said, well, you know, the heck with this, we're going in. And no one did. They all have the same training that we have from Alert, which is at Texas State University, and it's, it's rapid response to active shooter. And it says, and we do in Dallas, too, the lowliest SWAT guy that shows up on a barricade is the commander until somebody that outranks him becomes the commander, and then somebody outranks him becomes the commander. But when it's an active shooter, I don't care if you're by yourself. What did I say a couple weeks ago? It sucks to be you day. You got to go. That's what we signed up for. You can't not go. We're morally obligated, and I wish they could be criminally charged for cowardice, but I've looked all day in the laws. I promise you, the next legislative section, there'll be a law against this. What do you think happens to to all these officers (laughs) involved? No, please. (laughs) I think they should all be fired. I mean, you have to go case by case. I don't think we should try them in the media, but, you know, go down and interview each one and find out, okay, what did you see? What did you see? Not all of them fired, obviously. These 376, they didn't even know what was going on. But that initial handful did. And they need to be dealt with severely. This whole, there's an attitude sometimes amongst some lazy cops. Nobody ever got fired for being lazy. And that is a fact. And that's sad. But you should want to do this job. And no, none of us wants to get shot. But there is a priority of life. And hostages come first. Friendlies in the area come second. Police, SWAT, we come third. And suspects definitely come last. And you have to run, like you said earlier, run toward gunfire and make it stop. Why do you think 
that the way it went down went down in that particular town. Was there something specific about law enforcement in in Uvalde, maybe even law enforcement that showed up from the state and, and even the feds? Was there something specific that that would account for this, or is this something that could very easily be repeated innumerable times elsewhere in the country? Yeah, I, I, I teach all around the com- country for defense technology, and I teach active, a rapid response to active shooter. And I always tell the small town people, I said, I don't understand why this happens in small towns. I don't think it's because the suspects think you're not prepared. It's just, you know, when you get into smaller towns, everybody knows everybody, and they knew who this guy was, and they didn't act on it. But Bortak didn't, and they showed up, and I'm sure they had that look on their face like, why aren't you going in? And they must have mentioned keys about 25 times in that 77-page report. We don't need keys. We've got tools that'll break doors open. We don't need to wait on keys. Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen a a cop show on TV where they, they <laughs> right. bother to let's get the keys. Let's call for the, the janitor and get the keys. Yeah, let's get before the keys. We, uh, the keys not going to anyway, Usually, yeah. I mean, we've tried it in like hotel situations, and they disable it, or there's they're barricaded behind the glass or behind the door. Keys don't work. We have the key to the city. We have sledgehammers and Halligan tools and slammers. We can get in any kind of door there is. We have explosive breaching, and we have everything there is. Even the smaller towns do. And everybody thinks Dallas is the leader in, like, explosive breaching. I'll tell you, Garland PD, just north of us, is the leader. They taught us everything we knew. But these smaller towns have these tools, and they should have gone in there. And I just wish there were some sanctions because this was a major setback. We went from Columbine in 1991, where the response time was an hour and 45 minutes, and God bless those guys and girls, they didn't have the training. But in Dayton, Ohio, I think two years ago, now the guy did shoot nine people that he caught in an alley, but from the first shot to him being dead was 42 seconds. Our response time is better. We hear gunfire, and we run toward it. I'm sure that guy did not expect to be dead within less than a minute of his first shot. But we're moving on him faster. But we're not going to be able to stop him because this is a typical case of some nutty kid thinking something up at grandma's house or in their basement, you know, and nobody likes me, poor me, so I'll go shoot up a school. I, you're not going to stop that part. You can't stop family violence. You can't stop murder in the house. There are just some crimes that you can't stop. And there'll be another one. There's one about one mass shooting about once a month in America. And sadly, I'd love to come on and talk to you about not having one in a while sometime. We hope so, too. Rich Emberlin, former Dallas police SWAT officer, 30-year law enforcement vet. Rich, thanks. This latest COVID surge is showing no signs of slowing down. It's possible that new infections could surpass this past winter's surge numbers, which were mostly fueled by the original Omicron variant. UC Irvine latest campus to bring back an indoor mask mandate. The whole of L.A. County about to do the same in a couple of weeks. Um, when is this finally going to slow down? Dr. Andrew Neumer, professor of population health and disease prevention at UC Irvine. Doctor, thanks for being here. Um, I think we asked this the other week, but let's ask it to you. You know, if they're going to say we need the masks again, why not just pull the trigger now instead of, I don't know, July 30th? Well, Mike, it's, I'm glad to be back on KNX. Um, well, I mean, my employer d- did pull uh, the trigger on masks, as, as, as I think you mentioned in the intro. Uh, we're back on an indoor mask mandate uh, here at UC Irvine. And, uh, you, you know, I thought, I think LA County Public Health in their press conference last week uh, 
kind of hinted at some anxiety about people not following a, an order if if it's imposed and uh, feeling like they need, needed to stick to what they said before, which was two weeks in the high transmission zone before uh, bringing it back. Yeah, but you know what the real anxiety, I think, is? And, and you're right. They did express this anxiety that people maybe they won't follow it. But I would suggest that maybe the real thing that they're anxious about is that the people who don't want to follow it will then not vote for them and they'll be out of work. Well, it is an election year, Charles. As, as yes, it is. <laughs> uh, um, I, I, I mean, you, you know, I, I mean, COVID has been around now for 30 months and it's affected all of our lives and nothing that has been this persistent and has affected us this much is going to remain politics free for this long. And, you know, the fact that we have different policies and different postures in different counties in California and different states in the United States is a reflection of, you know, the underlying politics. The boards of health work for the boards of supervisors who are elected by the county voters who who differ from county to county, um, you know, et cetera, as, as, as all your listeners understand very well. So, yeah, I mean uh, – you know, p- people uh, are are not. You know, th- these decisions are not entirely divorced from from the political sphere. It's true. You can't also divorce it from just COVID fatigue, though. Either. I mean, thirty months, people are just done. They're just done with it, and they're they're. You know, another variant. Oh yeah, well, this one will be just like the rest. It's infectious. Whatever. I'm going about my life. No, absolutely. P- people are done, and uh, I mean, I see. Uh, you know, not as much masking as as I would like to see in certain situations, and. Uh, it's because people are are over it, uh, and you know, I, I mean, all I would say as a as a public health scientist is um, that you know we might be over the virus, but the virus isn't necessarily over us, and you know, it's a dangerous time to to. Well, but getting it. Yeah. And I was going to say, isn't it also because and and we've also talked about this on this show that the messaging uh, uniformly has been bad from day one. Uh, And it still is bad because the reason why a lot of people, I think, don't want to go back to mask wearing is uh, to sort of Mike's point. People kind of say, well, you know what? We're done. We're over. If we get it at this point, who cares? It'll be like getting a a bad cold. Yeah. And we'll be home maybe for a day or two from work and, and life will go on. But that's actually not true. It's not like getting the common cold. Well, the, the messaging has been confusing from day one, one uh, Charles. I don't, I don't know if, if I would say it's been uniformly bad. But, well, if uh, it's confusing, I, by definition, yeah, it's bad. I, <laughs> so, yeah. Fair, fair enough. I mean, I mean, I'm not arguing with you on that point. I'm just, I, I'm, just, I'm just trying to make the observation that not everything that has been said has always been wrong. It's just um, been presented often in, in, in confusing ways, and, and therefore it needs improvement. Um, yes, I mean – Look, this is worse than a cold uh, for many people, and there are over a million dead Americans, uh, you know, who can who could attest to that if they weren't dead. And uh, we we truly don't know what the cumulative effects are of of getting this thing uh, five and six times are going to be. Uh, it could be um, no worse than getting a cold five or six times. It, it could be. You know, it's setting up some sort of weird um, long COVID for for a lot of people who who are otherwise laughing it off at the present time. I mean, we just don't know. And I think there are are not enough people, you know, uh, who who, who admit that that we don't know a lot of things about this new virus. You know, there's there are newspaper columnists who 
who who who are all all of a sudden COVID experts who just you know have got it all figured out and uh, everyone I has become a scientist. Yes. Yeah, and I, I'm I'm here to tell you that there's a lot of things that that we still don't know about COVID. Well, we used to have the discussion, you know, is everyone going to get this? Is it inevitable? But let me pick up on what you said a, a second ago. Is is it now inevitable that we're all going to get this more than once? That's a great question, Mike. Um, I mean, most people are probably going to get it more than once, I would say. Yeah, I, I think it's inevitable that we're all going to get it at least once. Um, I mean, there may be people who get it a second time and don't even notice because they have um, you know, enough immunity from their, from their first infection. Um, there's, there's a wide variety of, 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 of responses to the virus in terms of, you know, some people obviously, you know, we know have gotten it multiple times and have been symptomatic each time. And then other people, uh, you know, get it and and they don't even know. I mean, they're, they're totally asymptomatic and, and they test positive. So, and is it? Let me interrupt on that on that sure. one quick point because isn't that what makes it all the more insidious? Because somebody uh, could get it, not be symptomatic, not know they've even had it, but that doesn't preclude them down the road from getting some form of long COVID without having realized they had COVID to begin with. Isn't that right? Yes, I mean, I mean, long COVID is is even more poorly understood than um, than you know COVID per se, but uh it it's clear that long covid can occur in people who've had asymptomatic covid so uh so sort of these symptoms that sort of never go away uh you know can 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 pop up even if you didn't have like a a, a bad case of covid in the first place so yes absolutely dr andrew neumer professor of population health disease prevention uc irvine doctor thanks as always You're listening to KNX In Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. You like Skittles? Uh, I do, actually, at times. Okay. Yeah. Well, there's a lawsuit that says you shouldn't eat them because they're not safe for human consumption. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's good to know. So, great news, everybody. (laughs) Yeah. Well, if you like to eat Skittles, a new lawsuit alleges they are, as Mike said, unfit. The uh, lawsuit claims that Skittles are made with a known toxin, titanium dioxide, Mars, the company that makes Skittles, says it uses titanium dioxide and it complies with FDA regulations in doing so. But will this lawsuit impact sales? Frances Perdue is a publicist and food branding and marketing expert. She's the CEO of Scooter P Entertainment and Purdue Inc. Thanks for being with us. Um, So, I don't know. You know, we were joking a little bit before Mike and I that something about hearing that candy might not be good for human consumption, I, I don't know. It doesn't sound like it's something that should surprise anybody. Right. Nothing's good for us. You didn't know that? Yeah. <laughs> Everything, Everything is bad. Yeah. causes something. Yeah. So, but this whole thing with this lawsuit and, and Skittles, uh, to go to the central question, is, is that going to cause an, an issue? You think people are going to stop buying it? I think it depends on what happens in the lawsuit. If they win, right, and there's a class action, I see people saying, oh, I'm not going to eat Skittles. But who really does the research, right? Mars is the parent company. And it's not just about Mars, you know, men are from Mars, women from Venus. It's really a company that makes other candies, right? Mm -hmm. So even if they don't take the Skittles, I'm sure they won't stop purchasing from Mars as a company because they make a lot of other products, right? 
And when you go to the movies, you want Skittles and gummy bears. Exactly. Believe it or not, well, that, they make gummy bears. That's my favorite. Yeah, don't, so does, I don't think that Norris, they're going to stop. They do like Mo- Sour Patch Kids well, and they do they M&Ms. Do, M&Ms, yeah. right, yes. Yeah. Whenever I go to a movie, I have M&Ms, and it hasn't hurt me. <laughs> well, as far as we know. Far, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's just funny that this is not new. It came around in 2016, depending on what, you know, article you read and they were already sanctioned and they said we're going to do something about it but here we are in 2022 and they haven't done anything and i don't see kids and people stop eating skittles today yeah (laughs) so i don't know i think um we're becoming more and more conscious like we talked about before and some people will stop but for the most part if there isn't a real big lawsuit and a judgment put against them i don't see people having such a big effect on how many people actually buy is this one of those things too where it's like you know they they said and we read the part of the statement there you know they comply with the fda regulations well you start to read all those and you can pick almost any food and they can have like a certain percentage of something that's not that food in mm-hmm. that food that's always the case right there there's, can be something else in there right but they said that they're in 2022 i guess the independent study showed that they had more than the recommended amount to go past so either way, they said they were going to do something in 2016. It's 2022, what, five years later? And they really aren't motivated. And I, I see why, because the sales are up for candy. People are anxious. It's still COVID. People have their, you know, their snacks, your go-to snacks. So why would they take it off the shelves unless they were forced? Well, well you're into marketing. I mean, a company like Mars, does it have to sort of mount some new campaign, you know, with some catchy thing like, I don't know, Skittles, it won't kill you or something, or something like that. <laughs> we'll workshop it. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good that starting point. Right. It's a great starting point. I think a, that they're going to <laughs> see what happens, but they're going to go away from actually talking about that particular product. So what it is, is just like you have a Ciroc or some type of liquor, right? They always come out with a new brand, a new flavor, right? So they're going yeah. to focus on another brand of candy until the dust settles then they'll come out with some type of celebrity supported ad campaign and then everybody's going to be eating skittles again the new and improved skittles mm-hmm. with uh 30 like less McDonald's. titanium dioxide it's the same thing i i, I, th- I don't know not one athlete not sponsored by McDonald's. that's right yes <laughs> no but don't, don't you think, I, I think that'd be a really good kind of campaign skittles it won't kill you won't kill you <laughs> There's an even asterisk next to the it. The log line is awesome. <laughs> I think we should roll with it. <laughs> Francis Purdue, publicist, food branding and marketing expert, CEO of Scooter P Entertainment and Purdue Inc. Francis, thanks. The Midsummer Classic is just a day away. Major League Baseball's best and brightest will take the field tomorrow at Dodger Stadium for the All-Star Game. It is the first time since 1980. The Dodger Stadium is hosting the game. Home run derby today marks the biggest of the events surrounding all this. Uh, good luck finding a ticket, though, if you want something affordable. Tickets for the game itself, anywhere from $300 to more than 15000 Are ticket prices ever going to drop again? David Carter, sports business professor at USC Marshall School of Business, founder of the Sports Business Group. Thanks for being here. Okay, 300 uh, sure, but the high-end price, not as bad as the Super Bowl. But that, that seems steep. Well, it does. Great to be with you guys. I mean, it, it may seem steep, but the market is speaking. It's really all about supply and demand. In this market in particular, in L.A., you have such an entertainment culture. You have so many companies that want to entertain. Uh, this is very much an event, not a commodity of a game. So I think, you know, you have a lot of forces in place right now that uh, are driving that ticket price to where it is. 
Yeah, but I remember growing up as a kid in New York City, and, and you know, you can go to, to Yankee Stadium or, or uh, Shea Stadium at the time. Uh, and, you know, even as a, as a kid, maybe with not even any income but just an allowance, you'd be able to afford going to see a game. Uh, can kids do that now here in L.A.? Well, I think when you, when you think about affordability, you really have to, to, to figure out what does that mean and, and who are the consumers. I think back then, back in the day, and I was a kid as well at Dodger Stadium, there wasn't that corporate presence. There weren't those companies uh, that were using that as a backdrop for business development. It was the family of four. It was the kid cutting school and heading out to the day game uh, and so forth. But those days are, are long behind us. And, and also, you know, we were very well aware of the secondary ticketing market now, which uh, is, is really helping to optimize or set some of those ticket prices. So it's just a completely different scenario. How much of some of this is that L.A. effect that you were kind of mentioning before? I mean, we saw it with the Super Bowl, too. Sometimes you go to take somebody or you go to be seen or you go to put it on Instagram. I mean, fans want to go see a game or a big event game like this because they want to see it. But then when you look around, there are plenty of other people who go just because they feel like they need to go. Well, I think there is a lot of that. There's pent-up demand for these major events. But it, but I think it's really important to also understand that a Super Bowl or a Major League baseball all-star game those are not games those are not events that are put on by the rams or the dodgers these are league events so they're controlling uh, everything uh from beginning to end uh, so that will be their imprint on it they're uh, there to impress and entertain media partners their corporate sponsors uh the, the teams have tickets for example typically executives come to town for meetings for the week and so these are league oriented and structured events and so when we think about affordability, you have to compare that to us, say, buying a ticket to a Rams or a Dodger game during the regular season. And that's also a very different proposition. But, you know, when, when prices become sky high in, in other areas, for example, restaurants that charge an enormous amount of money or, or some attraction, you know, also the money tends to serve as a gatekeeper. It, it tends to keep people out uh, so that, you know, people, quote, like us, are the only ones that can enjoy the restaurant or can enjoy the particular attraction. Is that what's going on here, too, that the prices are so high that only, quote, people like us can afford to go? Well, I think there is a lot to be said for that. But but once again, you, you think about, get back to supply and demand, the, the number of seats available at SoFi or at Dodger Stadium, uh, not going to change very much event to event. And yet you have people all over the country uh, looking forward to attending. You have corporate budgets, and I understand we're in a really tight economic time right now, but you have corporate budgets that might be a little bit more flexible than that family of four's budget. They might be able to write that off uh, for uh, entertainment's sake, and they might use that ball game and everything around it as a chance to, to deliver on their, uh, on their business development, as I said earlier. So comparing the corporate fan to the everyday fan is really, is really tricky. And so where does the everyday fan go when – when the leagues and, and, and others control the inventory of tickets, well, they often have to uh, end up on the secondary exchanges, and those tickets can be much more in line with what the market will bear, and typically they're considerably higher. Does it also help, like we mentioned, that it hasn't been here since 1980? And I mean, look at the setting, right? It's Dodger Stadium, so it's iconic from the get-go. Well, you know, I was at the stadium yesterday for a walkthrough on a different piece of uh, uh, business, and I'll be there tomorrow. And uh, I've been to every Major League Baseball stadium in the country. And when I walked into Dodger Stadium, I recognized how for so many Angelinos, they're tired of the parking problems, they're tired of the traffic, uh, but you walk in there, you see the palm trees, you see Dodger Stadium, 
and it is absolutely iconic. Who wouldn't want to be there for a major special event, a World Series game, an All-Star game? So it is standing the test of time. The renovations have made it very fan-friendly. The food and beverage options, everything about that venue has changed dramatically and for the better over the course of the last several years. You mentioned, David, that when you were a kid, you used to frequent uh, places like Dodger Stadium. So if you were back to being uh, the David Carter of nine years of age, you couldn't go to a game now, could you? I probably would not be able to go to a game unless a next-door neighbor who had seats or had a corporate box or uh, whatever would would, uh, invite me and the family. But again, back when I was nine, there weren't luxury suites. Uh, there, There weren't all these other opportunities to spend time and money on sports and entertainment. So Unfortunately, looking back some 40-some-odd years to where we are today, uh, uh, comparing the former All-Star game to tomorrow's, um, the landscape has shifted entirely, and it's, it's a little bit of an unfair recollection. It's rather nostalgic, and I guess we long for those days, but you know, sitting there in the bleachers and having a Dodger dog is really just that. It's a, so we better it's a off? memory for a young boy. So are we better off now than then? Well, I, I mean, it depends on, I guess, uh, what your interests are. Uh, there are a lot of people that will save up, and, and for them, going to a Dodger playoff game or a Laker playoff game is a periodic opportunity, and they'll save for it, and they'll make the most of it. Um, you have to go back, I think, and, and, and again, understand that um, attending a sporting event isn't a right. Uh, these are private businesses, and they're going to set the prices either through their league or through the individual team based on what they think will help them drive the value of their team and generate revenue. And so... You know, they're, they're running a business like the guy who's running a hamburger stand in town or a dry cleaners or, or any other business. He's making those decisions based on his revenue and the value of his team in this case. David Carter, sports business professor, USC Marshall School of Business, founder of the Sports Business Group. Well, that's an interesting message for nine-year-olds out there. Going to a game, not your right. Go to a normal game, just save up for the all-star game. Uh-huh. Piggy bank stuff. Yeah. All right, that's in depth for today. Back tomorrow.